Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by UKG Workforce Management. With their HR and workforce management solutions, UKG gives you the tools you need to make all of your people feel like they belong. UKG. Our purpose is people. Now, enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to USA Today's Women of the Year, the podcast. I'm Connie Schultz, a columnist at USA Today. Women of the Year recognizes outstanding women from across the country. Each of them has charted a unique course full of challenges and conquests. I like to remind all of you that we're not saying that they never stumbled, that they never fell. The point here is that they always get back up. And these are those stories. Today, we meet Rupali Desai, a high-profile attorney in Arizona. Rupali Desai's legal work is built on some of the most important political and election issues of our time. In Arizona, some of her recent work focused on fighting lawsuits and claims of election fraud after President Joe Biden's narrow victory in the state. The 43-year-old lawyer also helped launch the state's recreational marijuana program and fought those legal challenges as well. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she won a court battle, voiding dozens of laws, including a ban on mask mandates that Arizona lawmakers tied to the state budget. In other words, she has been in the thick of things in every route you can imagine. Rapali tells USA Today that as a child, she didn't expect to chart this course for her life. Well, I am the child of Indian immigrants. And so, you know, all good Indian kids have some dream to become a doctor someday. <laughs> but it's, it's planted seed early on in your in your childhood. So I actually really didn't think I would go to law school or be a lawyer. I thought I would help people in a different way. I was interested in, in medicine and healthcare. My mom came to this country to be a physical therapist and worked in geriatric care all through my childhood, she worked at hospitals in Sun City, nursing homes. And so I would spend, you know, summer vacations and after school and, and various, you know, school breaks volunteering at those facilities and reading to elderly patients that she treated or running group activities. And I really enjoyed that. And so I thought, well, this is something I think I could do if I, you know, if I could pursue a career or profession in medicine. Um, I'm familiar with it. I like helping people. And so that's what I set out to do, really never thinking about any other options. But when I got to undergrad, I realized that there are lots of different ways, you know, to help, to help people to, but, but that thread was certainly constant throughout my childhood and then, and, and my higher education. I always knew I wanted to work in a profession that would allow me to give back to the community. I enjoyed meeting and interacting with people, especially folks who, seemed like they didn't have a strong a voice, you know, whether they were vulnerable populations or marginalized populations or, you know, just people who at that moment or that a person at that moment needed something. So I went on this track to become a doctor. And when I was waitlisted, I thought, okay, well, you know, 
I need to think about a potential other option in case I don't go. And I went to get a master's in public health thinking, all right, well, I can still kind of stay on track to be in the profession of medicine, went and got a master's in public health, and I fell in love with it in ways that were very different than the sort of traditional medical path. I liked the sort of creative thinking about how to develop policies around communities that needed additional support and assistance. My particular focus was in maternal and child health. So I worked in Southern Arizona with um, women who did not have adequate prenatal care and young children who were suffering from severe malnutrition. And that sort of work in policy really turned me on to the idea of going to law school. All right, I have a confession before we continue. I, too, went to law school, and I lasted about a year and a half and dropped out because I realized that, first of all, I really missed writing the way I like to write, and I didn't have the career ambition of a lawyer. Rupali, however, found her calling in law school and her life's mission. She is a high-profile politics and election law attorney who has shepherded great change in the state of Arizona. In 2020, she was asked to work on behalf of Arizona's Secretary of State as Joe Biden's victory in the presidential election was called into question. This was important work, she says, in this time when public confidence in democratic institutions continues to erode. That is such a big conversation in our home. I'm in my 20th year as a columnist and in my 18th year of marriage to a United States senator because being a columnist wasn't complicated enough. I had to marry a member of Congress. We talk about this decline in public trust all the time here because both of us are in professions that are suffering from it. Having the ability to frame those issues, go into court and talk about honestly why these cases are problematic, not just from a legal perspective, but from a public policy perspective is meaningful. So, you know, there were 11 or so cases around the 2020 general election that I represented the Secretary of State um, in both pre-election and post-election. There are cases on behalf of private clients that ran initiatives, including the, the Smart and Safe Act, but also Invest in Ed, which is I do a lot of work around public education funding and support for public schools. So that has been, you know, I've been doing that for a long time. In in 2018, I represented Save Our Schools in the referendum to turn over the legislation relating to privatization. And then again, in 2020, worked for Invest in Ed, now Invest in Arizona around public school funding. So I think those are the cases that are my legacy because they have impact beyond just my clients. So even though I might have one or two or three clients, the impact is broad. Earlier this year, we got a great ruling from the Supreme Court, the legislation that was passed in Arizona prohibiting COVID mitigation and mask mandates in schools. And that was, you know, a case that really was about budget reconciliation bills. But it, you know, so we're keeping the legislature in check from a constitutional perspective, but we're helping, you know, countless families and children in Arizona who benefit from having mask mandates and COVID mitigation measures in their schools. Rupali has been married to an artist for two decades. I'm not going to say that's better than being married to a U.S. senator, but it does sound a little more interesting. They have three daughters, and she talked about the importance of raising them to be confident and accountable citizens of the world. It's like perfect for me that I have three girls because, you know, each time when I had a daughter, I thought, okay, well, the future is female, but I am certainly doing my part to make that true. 
So they are four, seven, and nine. And my husband is an artist. It's a great dynamic that we have because, you know, I'm this like rigid type A lawyer and my husband is this creative artist and the girls get the best of both worlds. I met him in undergrad, actually. Yeah, he is a a boy from Arkansas. So I I met and married a a white boy from Arkansas. Growing up as a as an Indian immigrant, and you know, going back to India and sort of having this pretty significant emphasis on marriage and and male sons, and um, you know, really kind of having a very um, I think a strong Indian influence in my life, it was a little strange to then have three daughters and wonder whether they were going to face the same sort of scrutiny and challenges and hurdles that I faced as a woman, as a woman of color, having this sort of, this happens in, in both of my lives as, a, as an American woman, as an Indian woman, there are different challenges. And now I've, I've brought three, you know, Indian girls into this world that are going to, you know, face some of those same things, but I feel empowered to help them, <laughs> help them do things, you know, to overcome that just like I did. I think having open and honest conversations with them and exposing them to, you know, the world that we live in. And I often ask myself, you know, are they too young to have this conversation? Are they too young to have this experience or to see or learn about this thing? And, you know, they're obviously, as parents, we're always making decisions about what is, what's appropriate for our kids. But I, I try to err on the side of being transparent with them and to teach them about being compassionate and that it is our role as humans and as, you know, citizens of our communities, small and large, to give back. We volunteer together. We do food bags for at my four-year-old's school. We live downtown Phoenix and, and she goes to a school where there are food and stable families. And we make food bags for families of her, you know, she doesn't know which of the children are the beneficiaries, but it doesn't matter. The point is there are people in our lives that we don't even recognize may need help and it is our job to help. Rupali says that early in life, her mother taught her the importance of helping others and how to navigate hardship. My mom definitely paved the way for me in the sense that I I learned how to be a really strong woman and overcome a lot of difficulty. I can't even imagine, you know, I throughout my life, I have faced sexism, racism, and it is... It is periodic and it's temporary. I have a lot of resources to be able to help with that. When I think about my mom facing that on a almost probably daily basis, that gives me a lot of strength. And, and she definitely paved the way that way. But I have to be honest that a lot of the people who paved the way for me were people who were kind of unexpected champions of mine. So the gray-haired partners in the law firm you know, many, many mentors of mine were the most senior male litigators in the firm who decided that they were going to champion me and go out on a limb and ask, you know, a client to hire me or a partner at Lewis and Roca is the one who made the phone call to then Chief Judge Mary Schroeder on the Ninth Circuit and said, hey, I've met this remarkable, smart, young lawyer, and she's graduating from law school and wants to clerk. Will you consider interviewing her? I'm not sure I would have gotten an interview with the Chief Judge of the Ninth Circuit for a clerkship, but for you know his call. So there are many people along the way who paved the way for me 
um, simply by believing in me and and telling me that my uniqueness and my sort of the, the fact that I'm different is actually an asset. And hearing that as a as a woman and a woman of color and a young lawyer is remarkable because otherwise, you know, especially in my childhood, assimilation was, you know, um, a very, very important part of being here. It was not as popular in the 70s to, you know, retain that sort of cultural identity. So we were encouraged to speak English in the house, even though my first language was um, Gujarati. And, you know, my parents would encourage us to to participate in various, you know, clubs and, and, and events that would help us assimilate. So to hear, uh, you know, later in life that, Hey, it's okay to be different and to sort of champion your, your differences was, it was really important. And so in turn, I think that's what my mentoring role focuses on when I see people who are struggling or need some guidance or are, you know, kind of conflicted about their own personal experience versus what they might want to do in their professional career Mentoring for me almost always happens sort of at the now with law students, but I, I, from time to time, when my daughter's classrooms have opportunities and hasn't been so much during COVID times to come in and, and talk to younger kids about what I do, I will gladly do that because it starts so early, like teaching young women about how to love themselves starts, you know, should start a lot sooner than when they're, when they're graduating from law school. This episode was produced by the great James Brown, and there's more where this came from. You can watch USA Today's video interview with Rapali Desai and see our photo gallery. You can also read my colleague Suzette Hackney's story about Rapali at womenoftheyear.usatoday.com. And you can also see our entire list of national recipients there, which includes one honoree for every state in America. Please tell your friends about the podcast. We want more people to hear these personal stories from women who wouldn't quit, no matter the challenges. Please write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people to find the show. In next week's episode, we'll hear from Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, the lead scientist for coronavirus vaccine research at the National Institutes of Health. She helped develop the COVID-19 vaccine, saving millions of lives. Courage is the strength to do what what faith says you have to. I'd love to hear from you. Tweet me at Connie Schultz or at USA Today or email us at podcasts at usatoday.com. Thanks for listening. No matter who they are or what job they do, you want to give your employees all the support they need. And UKG with their HR and workforce management solutions can give you all the tools you'll need to help you make your people, all of your people, feel like they belong. UKG, our purpose is people.